Well, welcome back. I hope you all enjoyed your lunch. And uh, we are going, going to now start the, the question and answer portion of the conference. And uh, we had you fill out your questions. Uh, we think it would be helpful if, uh, I think we want to hear from you. And so even if you wrote a question down, we're going to allow you to uh, have the microphone to ask your question. And uh, we're going to do our best time permitting to get to all of these questions. And so you might just raise your hand uh, if you have a question. Even if, as I said, if you've written it down on here, that's okay. Uh, you can still ask the question out loud so that everyone can hear. If, we, uh, if there are certain ones that haven't been asked uh, that we have here, I, I can go ahead and read those. But, but we're going to go just by show of hands. If you have a question, go ahead and raise your hand. And then we'll let uh, uh, Dr. Burke answer those questions for us. So uh, who would like to go first? Yes, I have them all right here. But I think uh, just a new one. Would you, are you willing to okay. do it out loud? Okay. Sure. Yeah, we'll just love to have you do it out loud. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I'm just, just saying on it, and it, it's um, not exactly a, a great question informed in that way, but that the Nashville statement has been very, very helpful to me. I've read it mm. over and over. Um, I think it's a very concise and helpful um, hitting on many different areas of the things you're talking about. And it summarizes, a couple of the articles summarize and are exactly what you've taught us this weekend. So I wanted everyone in here to know, I wanted you to speak a little bit more about that. Can you pop it up on your phone or something and maybe read a couple of the articles that apply to what you've done? <coughs> Unless you have, maybe you have them all memorized. Yeah. And, um, I, I don't have them yes. memorized. Um, I would say if you haven't been to look at it and read it, um, you can go to cbmw.org and you can read the Nashville Statement. We've had it, uh, since it came out, it was translated into several different languages. I think we've got Spanish, German, and Chinese right now. And uh, how many of you said you had heard of the Nashville Statement before this weekend? Several of you have. Um, it, let me just, I want to say this about it. When the Nashville Statement came out in August of last year, it was met with a lot of controversy, which you can imagine would be the case. But um, I was surprised at the level that it got to. And the reason was because I was hoping that we would do this effort and we'd have a lot of initial signatories in order to commend this to evangelical Christians and people who love the Bible as a statement, a flag in the ground on what we believe about uh, homosexuality, marriage, and transgenderism. And I was hoping that it would get some play in our circles. And I literally, before the website launched that Tuesday morning, I told the guys in the office, I said, well, I hope some people pay attention to this. Maybe we'll get an article in Christianity Today or something. It went way beyond that. <laughs> uh, it went way, way beyond that. And the reason was because when we released the website, the uh, mayor of Nashville picked it up. And she tweeted it out and criticized it and said, this is not, does not represent Nashville values. Well, after she did that, then all these national news sites started picking it up. 
There was articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the L.A. Times. Um, the uh, number of people paying attention to it and writing parodies of it all over the country were just through the roof. There was a cast member, former cast member from Saturday Night Live, tweeting against it. I mean, you just not believe the outpouring of scorn from the outside world that came on it. I never would have expected that because that didn't happen with the Danvers statement. <laughs> um, but we're in a social media age, and so you knew a little bit of this would, would come around, but it just was a lot. And um, so, you know, a lot of us ended up writing uh, defenses of the Nashville statement in the immediate wake of it because of all that attention. Um, I wrote an article in The Hill, um, if, you know, if you're familiar with the, the Capitol Hill newspaper. Albert Moeller wrote one for the Washington Post. Um, Rosaria Butterfield wrote one for our web website. She's a signatory. She signed it. And so we had a number of people that were just out there. Randy uh, Alcorn wrote one. We didn't even ask him to. He did one. But we had a number of people that were out defending it as well. We put into one volume uh, a very small booklet uh, called The Nashville Statement, uh, a, a def those different essays that were written in different outlets, which you can get. I should have brought some, but I didn't bring them with me. Uh, if you ever want to read a defense of it. But I'm not going to read through the whole thing here. It would probably take too long. But I would encourage you to go look at it and understand that um, some of the initial misunderstanding with the Nashville statement was this, this was not our manifesto to the world. This was supposed to be a, a church document. It was not a political document. It was supposed to be written for church ministries and uh, other Christian ministries who needed some boundaries and some definition of things to enable them to catechize their own people and to teach their own people. That was, that's what it was supposed to be to be for. So it was not supposed to be this big culture war thing. It just was never intended to be that. It just got turned into that by the mayor of Nashville. So I hope that helps. But uh, I do, the reason I brought all that up is because I want you to, I want churches to adopt this. I want uh, schools to adopt this as, their, as a standard, or at least use the language, if you can use the language. Use it or something like it, because you can't be unclear about these things anymore. So since this came out, we've had uh, probably three different state Baptist conventions adopt resolutions affirming this or language that uh, uses the Nashville Statement to affirm this. The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary adopted this as one of its confessional standards alongside Danvers and the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and then our other confessional standards. There are some presbyteries in the PCA that are working on this. Um, uh, who else? Cedarville University, Christian University up in Ohio, they adopted it. That's, that was kind of our thing. We never wanted just a big social media buzz. We wanted institutional penetration because we want long-term impact over time. And we want to form the way that Christians are thinking about these things. And so that's why we did this. So I'm thank you that this was helpful. We are trying to get the word out as best as we can about it. And uh, that's part of the reason we do conferences like this. <coughs> Mine's got several parts to it. Um, and I use, I'm going to use the word apparent purposefully. Can you, put so your, can you put it up to your mouth a little bit? Oh, sorry. Maybe? Okay, so I'm going to use the word apparent purposefully in my first part of my question, then I'll just read on through the rest of them. 
Um, why are we seeing an apparent surge in transgenderism? Is it, is it the fruit of the soul sexual revolution? Um, is it something that it is feeding on itself? And the rest of it is, are we just beginning, are we just becoming more aware of it? And with cultural acceptance, are these, struggle, are these struggling with, with uh, gender dysphoria more comfortable with being public about it and, and more likely to follow through with their, with their uh, mental inclinations? So it's a whole series of questions about <coughs> kind of the, the past cultural things that, are, that have maybe fed into it. And, and then the current events. So probably five or ten years ago, um, surveys would have said that there were maybe around 700,000 people who would identify as transgender in the United States, somewhere in that ballpark, which is less than a percentage of 1% of the total population. In other words, it was really infinitesimal, the number of people who would have been identifying in this, this as transgender in any kind of a way. It was, it was so, so small. Yeah, yeah, even five or ten years ago, it would have been really, really small. Um, the current numbers, I don't even know what the most current numbers are. All I can tell you is, is they're going up, okay? So that's not in our imagination, but they are, they are going up. And you're seeing it going up even, I think, among children and adolescents, more and more who, who are adopting this. Now, so the question is, well, why? Why would that be the case? Well, I, there's no way to get around the fact that a part of this is just a cultural moment. Um, so, so what happened in leading up until 2015 with the Obergefell decision was you had people pushing for LGBT rights, but it was mainly focused on LGB, and in particular gay marriage. And once it became clear that gay marriage was um, a fait accompli, it was almost like everybody... It was, like, it was like the national attention got turned finally to the T in LGBT. And um, now that this battle has been won, we're going to take it to the next battle. So you saw in 2013 a cover story on transgenderism in, uh, in Time magazine. Um, you saw one, I think, in Newsweek. I told you about the one in National Geographic. And then, of course, the big thing that happened was in the same year as Obergefell, the Caitlyn Jenner thing, which hit the world by storm. And it kind of put it on, you know, on television for everybody to have to deal with. And so there has been an effort in the wider culture to push for acceptance of this. Along with that has come with, along with that, it is now seen as kind of having a social cachet if um, you have one of these alternate gender uh, identities. And I think that that's the case, and we were just talking about this with the, the pastors in the luncheon, but... Uh, the reason you're seeing an uptick in the number of children reporting this is in part due to this, it's actually their social capital in this. Social capital in being um, different in this way, in some places, depending on where you are. It may not be that way in Amarillo, Texas, but it, it just is that way in certain places. And so um, there's that aspect of it. It's kind of cool to be gender fluid. Um, same thing could be said about homosexuality. So that is a, th a factor that's there that was not there when I was a kid at all, but it's increasingly the case. The second thing that's, that's there is, I, I mentioned this in my talk, I think that people are, um, this is a ready explanation for people who want to pathologize why children are unhappy. 
And I, I mentioned the story about the two members from my church. That's a real thing. Um, have you all ever heard of um, Dr. Paul McHugh? Are you familiar with him? This is a story about a college student, but I think it illustrates the point. Um, I, I was, uh, he was telling me a story once. He's, he, w- he used to be the, uh, the head of um, uh, psychiatrics at uh, John Hopkins University. He was there and was a part of the team that was pioneering sex change surgery back in the 70s. And he led John Hopkins away from those surgeries because he saw that it was not having the psychological outcomes that they wanted it to have. And so they stopped doing those surgeries at Johns Hopkins because of Paul McHugh. And since then, Paul McHugh has been writing against transgender experiences and especially the, the uh, surgeries that people undergo to, to change their bodies because he's had firsthand experience with it. And he says it doesn't really help people. And uh, so anyway, I got to sit by him, and I was, he's been at, at, a, at a luncheon one time, and he told me this story that was just shocking. Uh, he said that this happened recently, okay? Keep in mind, Paul McHugh's a, a physician, and he's trained lots of physicians in his way of thinking about these things. But he's on the outside of the larger guild right now. Anyway, there was a student at Texas A&M who was dating a girl, living with this girl and at some point during their relationship uh well i'm trying to be polite here it was an he was raised in a christian home but he was walking away from the lord apparently when he went to school i think he was living with his girlfriend and she began to want to at her behest wanted a 50 shades of gray kind of a relationship if that makes sense and he didn't want that. And she was insisting on it, and he didn't want it. So he goes and talks to the gender counselor at the school. And the counselor at the school says, it may be that you are not really a man. It may be that you are really a woman. Now, here's the, he's having this conflict because he doesn't want to do this perverted thing with this girlfriend. He goes to the counselor, and the counselor says, have you considered this? So he went on hormone blockers. He, st- he, got sh- he went into a treatment for this and started going to a gender clinic and goes on hormone blockers and begins thinking about surgery and the next step in the process. But he's just depressed. He's sad all of a sudden. And finally, somebody connected him with a, th- a therapist who was connected to Paul McHugh who said, you're not a woman. Uh, this is not the reason why you're unhappy and the reason that you felt bad about your relationship with this girl, that, that's not the explanation. So I remember I was listening to, the, to, to McHugh tell me this story and I'm thinking, oh my word. That right there is happening all in a lot of different places right now. You're, they're, they're pathologizing people's pain in such a way that they explain it through some kind of gender identity conflict. And so I think you're going to see a lot more of these cases reported because of that kind of thing that's happening. Because the therapeutic community, some sectors of it, shoehorn people into these, to considering this as a possibility for, what it, for their psychological problems that they're having. So I don't think actual instances are going up. I think people are being persuaded 
from other environmental factors that they should interpret their unhappiness in this way. That's what I think is going on. Uh, so my question was more about trying to um, uh, get a uh, categorical understanding of some of the topics that you've been discussing. Um, you have stated that in the psychological community that there is a debate about the influences of nature versus nurture, but I'm finding it difficult to understand your stance on the biological consequences of the fall. Uh, you have clearly stated that sinful acts are the fruit of sinful desires, of a sinful heart. Yet, if it is true that same-sex attraction and denial of biblical gender roles is always sin, and there is any room for the source of those attractions to be genetic, then we must say that the fall has rendered us physically incapable of keeping the law. Uh, so is, it your is this your understanding of depravity, or is there something that I'm missing in your logic? Yeah. You're correct. The theories for why people, you know, there are different theories ex to try to explain why people feel the feelings they feel. Let's just take same-sex attraction. Some people have theorized some kind of a genetic issue that predisposes people to feel a certain way. Other people say, we were just talking about in the other meeting, about a broken relationship with a same-sex parent. So it's an environmental feature that leads to same-sex attraction. Um, I'm just going to tell you that the authorities, they don't agree on any single theory. Okay, so nobody knows. I don't know if, if there, there could be some biological factor to this or not. My view is, is that it doesn't matter in terms of how we assess it morally. Because if your view is, if you define sin as any transgression of the law of God, and if you understand that the whole world has been broken, whether or not there's a biological factor to this, it, it doesn't make a difference. I think you could say there's a biological factor that predisposes to depression. The same may be the case for alcoholism. The predisposing factor doesn't mitigate morally what the scripture says about the behaviors associated with that or the feelings associated with that. So even if there is a biological factor, that's just a testament to how broken the world is and how we are. It's not a testament exonerating the behavior or the feelings. That's, that's all that that would, that that would be. And so I think it's important for us to recognize because for a long time, a lot of Christians, especially in the public square, we're saying homosexuality is a choice. And the, the response was, no, I was born this way. And so it, we kind of got pitched in this battle. The non-Christians said, I was born this way. The Christians say, no, you just chose it. Well, there's a sense in which you obviously you choose the behaviors you choose to, to engage in. But the, they, were, they weren't talking just about that. They were talking about the way they felt. Some people were reporting that from their earliest ages, they felt these broken desires what we would call broken desires, but they felt same-sex attractions. And um, I'm saying that our response to them never should have been, it's only a choice. Especially if you hold to a, re a reformed understanding of the fall and of human depravity, which means there's no part of us that is exempt from the fall. 
There's brokenness in our bodies and there's brokenness in our minds. There's brokenness in that part of us which is material and there's brokenness in that part of us which is immaterial. So if they ever found a, gen a gene that predisposes people towards this, that'd be a testimony towards the brokenness of creation, which our theology explains, right? Um, if, if, if it's environmental factors, our, our theology explains that too. We never should have been saying, no, you didn't really feel that from your earliest times. Our theology actually doesn't support a statement like that. Our theology teaches that we are broken in our hearts and all of us from birth are sinners. And we have uh, desires for things that we ought not have desires for. And depending on who the person is, that might come in any of a number of different varieties. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that some people have broken desires they feel like from their earliest age in this certain direction. Um, a Reformed theology understands that and comprehends that. So, so for me, to answer your question, whether or not there's a biological predisposing factor or not, is it, it doesn't change the moral assessment that we have. It might change the compassion or our understanding towards someone, but it doesn't change the moral assessment that we have of, say, same-sex attraction or homosexual behavior. So you talked a lot about the different um, biological roles that uh, men and women have. So there's a male side and a female side. But can you speak a little bit more about uh, intersex or different variations and kind of a biblical response to that? Sure. Um, the one book that I wrote called What is the Meaning of Sex? If you ever get that, there's a chapter in there that deals with the issue of intersex. I haven't really talked at all about intersex this weekend. I think I mentioned it briefly. Um, this is important because intersex is often brought out as a defeater for what we believe about male and female distinction. Okay, so I just made the case to you today that male and female are biological categories. Okay, that it, male and female designates the reproductive, how the body is designed for its reproductive functions. Okay, that's what male and female have to do with. Um, intersex is um, different than transgenderism. Because intersex is a term that refers to a range of different conditions which cause someone's sexual anatomy to be malformed or um, ambiguous. So I'll, I'll just give, give you an example. Um, in 2009, I was talking at an uh, event on the campus of Southern Seminary, and this youth minister comes up to me. And he says, I was talking on gender issues, and he says, uh, he says, I have a question. He says, I've got a student in my youth group who, um, who grew up as male, but now wants to identify as female. I think that was the order. And, um, and I was, no, 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 it was the other way around. Grew up as female, but now wants to identify as male. I think that's the order. And, uh, and after he tells me this, I'm like, okay, I know where I'm going with the answer to this question. He needs to embrace, you know, the sex that he was, you know, God gave him. And, 
But then he says to me, he says, but this child um, had a different experience when he was born. As a baby, this child was born with ambiguous genitalia. And, you know, for most children, when they're born, they are delivered and the doctor can say, you know, it's a boy or it's a girl just by looking. There is a certain small percentage of individuals uh, for whom that, that's not the case. You can't tell by looking. There's either because of a uh, chromosomal abnormality or something else, maybe a hormonal imbalance uh, during um, development, caused them not to develop in a way that produced normal sexual differentiation in a way that you could see. And so he says this was the case with this kid. Okay, and so intersex, there's a range of conditions, okay, that fall into that category, but they fall under the broad umbrella term of intersex. But there's more than one condition. Intersex isn't one thing. It's a range of different conditions that produce that kind of a result. So he says that, that basically this kid was an intersex kid. And um, here's the thing. The way that secular therapists sought to deal with intersex children from about the 1950s forward was through surgeries. There was a, a, a guy named John Money who was a surgeon and who said that, look, you know, maleness and femaleness, that's just something we learn from our culture. So if you've got a kid where it's ambiguous, just look what you have to work with and the doctors and the parents should just make a decision. If there's enough there to make a boy, then we'll surgically make a boy and then treat him like a boy the rest of his life. If there's enough there to make a girl, then we'll just make a girl and treat him like a girl the rest of his life and don't, you know, rest of her life and don't, you know, show any ambiguity. Well, the problem with that treatment protocol that John Money came, came up with was that a lot of these kids would grow up and they would feel themselves to be something different than what their parents and doctor chose. And um, the reason is because <laughs> God made us different. And even if you have a broken body, it doesn't change the fact that you either have X, X chromosomes or a Y chromosome somewhere, okay? So they were, not, they were ignoring basically the chromosomal realities that were underneath this. And so children would just grow up and they would feel themselves to be something that maybe matched more their chromosomes than the surgery, that's not the transgender experience, by the way. That's just a horrible thing that's happened. And, and what, what happened, though, was these kids would get operated on as infants, and it would make them more, sexual dysfunc more sexually dysfunctional as they grew up. And they had these identity conflicts because, because of the, the choices that were made for them. And so there's actually activist organizations now calling for an end to those surgeries, and I actually agree with that. I don't think they should be operating on these children like that for those reasons. Unless there's some threat to health or something, that you shouldn't do that just to try to normalize. But in any case, <coughs> uh, this youth minister comes up to me and says that kid was in his youth group was in that condition. Now this kid's growing up feeling himself different, feeling herself different than what the parents chose. What am I supposed to do? And at that point, I didn't know anything about it. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I just didn't know much about it. So what, what I would say now is, for those who are, who are born that way, there's, there's some important things to understand. Number one, there are underlying chromosomal realities that even if it, at the external eye can't tell whether you've got a, a boy or a girl, 
um, I wouldn't ignore the chromosomes. Um, the, the, the factor that determines for maleness is whether or not there's a Y chromosome, and in particular, a particular, some of you guys may know this better than me, I think it's the SRY gene on that chromosome, that's the switch that triggers for male development. Okay, So if you don't have a Y chromosome, that the default, by the way, is female for all children, XX. It's the addition of the Y chromosome that um, that makes that that patterns for male. So, I would I would argue sh don't under ignore the underlying. If there's a if there's a Y chromosome anywhere, and you can have all different kinds of abnormal chromosomal combinations. If there's a Y chromosome anywhere, don't ignore that. Um, but then the question comes: Well, what if you don't live in a first world country and you can't know that? And there's just sexual ambiguity there. And there's just um, sexual dysfunction because most of the people who are intersex are not able to reproduce. Um, I would say to those people, um, understand that there are some sad things in a fallen world that are not surprising to us, but that don't make it or render you insignificant in God's eyes. Or it, it doesn't make it that you can't follow Jesus. In fact, I think Jesus spoke about this. Y'all remember when Jesus was talking about, um, the, the disciples were asking Jesus about divorce in Matthew 19. Y'all remember that? And Jesus said, you know, anybody who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity commits adultery. Remember that? So, you know, what God has joined together, let no man put us under. He's really against divorce. He's, he made this statement that makes it really, really permanent unless there's a, some kind of sexual immorality. And his disciples say to him, well, if that's the way marriage is, then it's just better not to get married at all. And Jesus said, well, um, that is not for everybody, but for those to whom it has been given. And then he says, because there are some people who are eunuchs from birth, some people have been made eunuchs by men, and then there are some people who are eunuchs for the kingdom. Now, a eunuch is someone who, uh, you know, in the ancient world, a eunuch was someone that had, had been castrated. It was a male who had been castrated. And you wanted to have a eunuch around the harem because then you could trust that man around the women, the king's women. And so eunuchs would typically become high-ranking officials in certain ancient Near Eastern governments, Okay. Um, so, so a eunuch was somebody who had been castrated. Jesus says there are some people who have been made eunuchs by men. That's what that is. But then he says there's people who've been eunuchs from birth. Which means there's a category of people who are born with this reproductive dysfunction, and he knows about them. Um, I think that intersex people probably fall in that category. He then goes on to talk about those who are eunuchs for the kingdom. All three uh, that are eunuchs, none of them are excluded from knowing Jesus or for being a disciple of Jesus, even if they do have this ambiguity in their lives. They have to walk with Jesus in clarity and holiness with what they know, not with what they, they, they can't know. Um, it is an interesting that um, in the book of Acts, you remember Philip? That person that he evangelizes is the Ethiopian eunuch. He's not excluded from the kingdom because he's a eunuch. 
okay? And so we want to be clear with people, you're not excluded or outside of the purview of God's love because this, is, this has happened to you. But there may be levels of ambiguity that can't be uh, resolved on this side of things. Now, intersex is often brought up as a defeater for our argument because I say that um, your body doesn't lie to you. Well, obviously, some people's bodies are broken. Doesn't that disprove your argument? That's what they would say. I've been making the case that there's male and there's female. It's a binary. They say, no, because of intersex people, that means there's male, female, and then lots of people in between. So sex and gender are a spectrum, not a binary. And I would say that they have the wrong side of this, um, at least from a Christian worldview perspective. The, the intersex conditions don't, don't, te- don't show us um, what's right with the world, okay, the way God designed it. It's showing us what's broken in the world, okay? God created at the beginning male and female, but some of us, sadly, are born with lots of bodily conditions, Sometimes people are born predisposed to cancer. Sometimes people are born with all kinds of different things that are just sad and horrible and tragic. This falls into that category. It's not evidence to redefine the male-female binary. So it's the evidence of the brokenness of creation, not of God's design in, in, in original creation. So, And what that means is, is that in the new creation, you're not going to have any more broken bodies. Right? So when we're resurrected, we'll be resurrected in fixed bodies. There won't be cancer. There won't be intersex. So I don't know if that helps at all. But anyway, there's a chapter in my book that deals with it if you want to look at it. Socially, watching TV and just you know, living in the world. Uh, statistically, how many gay couples are there? I mean, it looks like just everybody's gay, you know, <laughs> if you just watch TV for a week or something. But I know that's not true, but I'm saying as far as the size of America and, you know, how many people have uh, uh, chosen that uh, path and things like that. What are we dealing with? Statistically, you know, I don't even know what the latest numbers are. Um, does anybody happen to know that off the top of their head? That's a good question to ask. Uh, what's that? Yeah, it used to be like less than five, but I, my assumption is is that it's probably going up because more people who say they feel this way are going to be open about it. But I d- I'm sorry, I don't know the latest numbers. I would say it's portrayal in popular culture is more prevalent than it's reality in popular culture. Oh, there certainly are. Yeah. Uh, my question is, I've noticed in the LGBT uh, community that there is a rise in the what these individuals want to be referred to in terms of the pronoun. Um, you know, we we've made the stance, or you've made the stance of you know, there's only man, there's only woman. On the transgender community, they want to 
some people who are transgender want to be referred to with the opposite pronoun uh, and all and so forth. How as a church do we deal with that in terms of ministering to somebody who is transgender um, and how do we go about that? Okay, so he's asking about transgender naming because what you'll notice is that with this revolution has come the insistence that you refer to people by their chosen gender identity, not by their biological sex. And they will, many of them will expect you to recognize that. And so it puts attention on us because how are we supposed to respond to that? Um, if, uh, you know, somebody comes up to you or if you have somebody in your family, you know it's a, it was, this is person was born as a biological male. He begins identifying as a female and now he wants you to call him that. She and her and maybe a new name altogether. And there's a, there's a question of what are we supposed to do? Do we acquiesce to the new names? Uh, is that capitulating? Or do we just go along with the names and try to, you know, be faithful otherwise? Um, and so, so I, I'll just go ahead and say that um, I'm kind of a hardliner on these things. Uh, I have some other friends who I think are wrong <laughs> who may be less of a hardliner. So I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'll tell you why I think it, okay? So, uh, so we quoted Ephesians 4, 15 uh, or yesterday, speak the truth in love. And all things we're supposed to speak the truth in love. So I do think that our obligation at all times is to speak the truth to people. Which means if somebody comes to me and wants me to indulge a fiction in the way that I speak, and in a way that um, affirms something that's harmful to them, I'm going to have a problem with that in general. So I'm not going to want to use pronouns that I know don't apply. And depending on the person, I'm probably not going to want to use a changed name. So I, so I, that's kind of my general feeling here is I want to love these people. I want to be a part of their life, but I don't want to speak falsehoods um, because I'm capitulating to somebody's insistence that I do that. Um, so Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love is a big thing, but there's another thing. That's Romans 12, where Paul says, as far as it's up to you, be at peace with all men. Which means there's lots of things that you could fight with people about in the world. But you don't have to pick every fight that you could possibly have. And when it comes to transgender naming, I don't think you need to go picking fights over this. And so um, the way that I've advised people who ask me about this is when it comes to a particular person, you have to ask, what's your relationship to that person? Um, And what are they requiring of you? So so if you have somebody that's in your family, let's say you have a brother, and your brother is, you've known him his whole life, and he grows up one day and he says, I'm, I'm a woman. And I'm not John anymore, I'm Jane. So you call me Jane. And um, from now on, I'm she and her, I'm not he and him, okay? And I want you to conform to that. If that's your close family member and you have a relationship with them, I'm probably going to resist agreeing to any of that. I'm probably just not going to agree to any of it. 
the proper name, the pronouns, or whatever. Because I'll feel a special responsibility to them to speak truth to them based on the relationship I have with them. But here's the thing. One time I was at a meeting with a bunch of activists, and I walked into the room, and I was the activists were filing in after us, and I was it was a private meeting. We were going to visit for a while. And one of the activists, I shook her hand, and it was obviously a man hand, okay? And just looking a little more closely, this was a man who was presenting as a woman. And sure enough, I found out this was a transgender person. This person is a pastor at a church in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it a totally different place than we are theologically. But it, he is dressing like a woman, wearing dresses, makeup, long hair, the whole thing. The only name I know for that person is the one that he gave to me. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know this person. So when it comes to proper names, and this is the only name I know, I might have to use it, okay? Um, so that's a pragmatic thing. Um, but I'm probably not going to, I'm still not going to acquiesce to the pronouns. But here's the thing. Even with somebody you don't know, you don't, when you're talking to somebody straightforwardly, you don't actually have to use those pronouns a lot. Because him and her and he and she, those are third-person things. And when you're talking to somebody, you're saying you and me. So you can usually, in talking to somebody, avoid those pronouns, and it's not a big deal. Um, when you're talking about that person in a way that they could hear you or that they could hear about, um, I don't necessarily want to pick a fight over pronouns all the time, so I'm probably just not going to use the pronouns. I'm just going to use the name. That, that, that's what I'll do. So as far as it's up to me, I want to be at peace with all men, and I'm not going to pick a fight over that. I am going to try to figure out how I can be a gospel influence in their lives. And if not picking a fight over that makes a way for that, then that's what I want to do. So I'm kind of a hardliner on the, on the naming, but I am looking for ways that I don't have to have a conflict about it. Does that, does that make sense? And depending on my relationship to the person may dictate how much of a conflict I'm willing to in, enter into with them about it. Question: uh, Someone someone wrote in and, and was kind of asking the same general question, but how far should uh, a Christian uh, go with this? Should they lose a job over it if if a school or their employer is telling them to call Johnny, she, <coughs> that kind of thing? This is the tough thing because I do think it's going to come down to that. So um, I, I I would just say you can't violate your conscience over this for the sake of a job. Um, so this, I've just expressed to you where my conscience is. So I can't, uh, I just have to take what's coming to me and live within that. And I would encourage uh, every one of you to do the same. Don't let somebody bully you into violating your conscience and what you think Scripture teaches on these things. And I'm saying that knowing that that could be costly for us. But also, let me reiterate, don't go looking for a fight. <laughs> don't walk around your job with a, a chip on your shoulder. That, that's not helpful either. Hello, yes. Uh, I just wanted to ask, do you think that modern understanding of genetics has helped or hurt the Christian's case? and how we handle it, and kind of looking forward with 
all the genetic testing and genetic uh, manipulation and such, uh, like obviously there's some battles there that we're are going to be okay, we're going to be okay with, and some that we're going to have to really fight moving forward and looking forward. And, and maybe the answer to that is just let tomorrow worry about tomorrow <coughs> and handle today's problems. But yeah. uh, um, just kind of thought to that a little bit. Well, as far as I'm concerned, all truth is God's truth. The more we discover about genetics and science, that that's all fine. Um, we just have to have an understanding that all facts are interpreted facts, and um, we all bring a perspective that we use to explain a set of facts. And some people are going to explain a set of facts in a way that's godless, and some people do it in a way that's godly. You just have to remember that. But as far as the stuff I've been talking to you about, I think it's helpful to us <laughs> at the end of the day. But you have to understand there's other people looking at the same given set of facts and coming to different conclusions because they don't share. Uh, but the, the issues there are deeper. It's not about what facts are on the table. It's metaphysical. It's philosophical and theological. That's where the real differences are. So that, and, and that's what's ultimately going to shape how you interpret the, the evidence that you see in science. So I'm not a scientist. But the stuff that I have read is, I think, helpful because I think we've got a binary encoded into the way, even into the chromosomes. And you can see how the chromosomes get broken so that that gets distorted in some people. But even the distortions are departures from a norm that's observable. You see, you know what I'm saying? So it, for me, it's not scary or, or anything. It, it's, it's great. Let me ask a question here from uh, one of the ones written. It says, regarding 1 Timothy 2, may a legitimate distinction be made between a woman teaching from the pulpit versus in other settings, for example, Sunday school, with men and women? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I told you about the Danvers statement, which is originally written to give a view of male headship in the church and in the home. But that original statement in 1987 had a a broad group of people that were involved with it. So um, it's, in other words, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty narrow in what it, it, it says. It affirms male headship. It affirms that certain offices within the church are available only to men. But it doesn't answer that question that you just asked. The reason is because there were people on both sides of that question whenever they were writing that statement. So I'm just going to acknowledge that probably in this room, among people who would call themselves complementarian, there may be people on both sides of that question. And I think there are good and godly people who are on the other side of it who are wrong <laughs> uh, from me. But uh, um, so I, I'm going to share with you what I think the, the Bible teaches, and you can test it against what other people say, but I'm going to tell you what, what I think. I think the issue is 1 Timothy 2.22. In fact, there's been more ink spilled over that verse and that passage than a lot of other things in the whole New Testament. There's a whole book called Women in the Church, edited by Tom Schreiner and Andreas Kostenberger, which is all about <coughs> 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. And it's real scholarly. It's pretty, it's pretty tough sledding. But if you have a little bit of training, uh, you could probably get it and read it. I've got a chapter in there. But uh, so what I'm arguing is what the point of view that we argue for in that book, okay? Um, so Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 
Um, egalitarians will often interpret that verse by saying, look, what it really means is I don't allow a woman to teach with authority. And authority probably has a negative connotation. So it means something like I don't allow a woman to teach in a domineering way. Okay? So it's not outlawing all teaching by women in the church. It's not even outlawing women from being pastors. It's just saying that they can't teach in a domineering way. That was a particular problem they were having in Ephesus, and so that's why Paul tells Timothy that. Tell them to stop doing that. So it's not excluding all you know, teaching within the church, women over men. Uh, I think that's a mistaken point of view, and the reason is because when Paul says he actually doesn't say with authority or in a domineering way. He says teach or, and the word does mean have authority over so he's prohibiting not one thing, a certain kind of teaching. <clears throat> he's prohibiting two things. But there are other people who would say, well, it does mean people who are kind of closer into our context and who might call themselves a complementarian. They're not egalitarian. They're not feminist. But they say, well, I still think it means to teach with authority. And there's a figure of speech that they argue is there. And so it's, he's not prohibiting teaching and exercising authority, but a certain kind of teaching again. And so a woman who is teaching under the authority of the pastors or submitting to the, you know, if she's appointed by the pastors to go teach a group of men, then that's fine. So that verse would not be excluding it on that reading. I don't think that even that reading is right. And so uh, I think your translations, the, the bulk of them, have it correct. They all say two different activities. I don't allow her to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And the... The exercising authority of part has to do with holding the office of elder, I believe. And so it includes that. It may include more than that, but it at least includes that. And the teaching part, he's not talking about teaching geometry or teaching algebra. He's talking about, in context of 1 Timothy, teaching has to do with teaching Christian doctrine, teaching the Christian faith, like taking the Bible, explaining what it means, and then commanding people to, to obey it. So when, by, when Paul says teach, he means the same thing that we mean when we say preach, okay? Because it's not just the communication of information about the Bible. Preaching is in the imperative mode. You're telling people what to do. You're telling them to obey what the Bible says. You, you're, when you preach, you're commanding people to do things. It's inherently authoritative. And Paul says that to, to Timothy. He says you've got to pres prescribe and teach these things exhort them with all patience so that's the task of a preacher when he teaches okay so it's inherently in the imperative mood and so what is Paul saying there in that verse the reason he's he's saying he didn't want the women to preach in that sense is because of the nature of what preaching is it is commands and he doesn't want the teaching ministry or the church's leadership ministry to undermine the roles that are supposed to be going on at home um, he wants it. He wants it to affirm it, and so um, so that's why the women aren't teaching over the mixed audiences, and why the teaching ministry and the elder ministry are limited to qualified men. That's my point of view. Um, I think it's the right point of view, or else I wouldn't have argued it to you. But that that's the point of view. So I think he's prohibiting two things: teaching and teaching, preaching, and exercising authority. Others would say, no, it's just a certain kind of teaching, and therefore they can teach over men in other settings. I would disagree with that. So at my church, we might have a, a woman come up and read Scripture, 
That's not the same thing as teaching. Um, she might pray, but we wouldn't have a woman preaching from the pulpit. We also, in our s- individual Bible studies, we wouldn't. she might pray or read the scripture, but she wouldn't teach the Bible study in a mixed setting. We would encourage women's ministries to other women, to children, and every other way that the Bible says, but we want to honor the headship principle in the church's ministry. That's how we understand it. I'm in wholehearted agreement. I wanted to ask, like, we have women, even in our tradition, that are highly educated and do a lot of writing. um, And, like, their writings are pretty good. I mean, like, they're showing us fair, good things, biblical things. Um, Should men be reading those to see I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any problem with that. I think Paul's talking about, he's talking about the preaching ministry of the church. That's what he means by teaching. And so that's just fundamentally different for me than reading a book. By the way, it's, it's important for us to know that some of these things that we have differences over like this question that I just answered here about women teaching or can they do it in the same way? That's not the same level of importance as some of these other things. We talk, We all understand that, right? <laughs> some things good people can agree to disagree over. You don't want to necessarily split your denomination or church over. But there are other things that are mo- a little more existential for us, like homosexuality, transgenderism. So I just want to make sure that we all are on the same page with that. Since God forbids cross-dressing, what do you think about Christians who dress as the opposite gender for entertainment, such as at a church event where they might be doing a lip sync or a skit to get a laugh, or how do you think God views cross-dressing for entertainment? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know where this has come up for me? Um, with my kids. You know what I've introduced to my kids? Uh, Looney Tunes. I loved the Looney Tunes when I was a kid, and so... I. I just bought a bunch of Looney Tunes on Amazon, and every now and again we watch Looney Tunes. You know who cross-dresses in Looney Tunes? Bugs Bunny, like all the time. You know, he'll dress like a girl, and Elmore Fudd can't tell he's not a girl, and it's this big gag, you know. And uh, when I was a kid, I guess I thought I didn't like that too much, but now I look at it, and I'm like, oh. (laughs) Uh, It it, it maybe bothers me a little bit more because of our our context. Um, Anyway, your question made me think about that. Um, I, I, I probably, so I'm probably, I, I would say I'm uncomfortable with it. I think it's something we should steer away from. I probably wouldn't make a law out of it. Um, or I, I probably wouldn't discipline somebody over it. I don't think they're actually trying to d- diminish the distinction between the sexes when they're doing this. I think that they know that they're putting on a farce and everybody can see it. So if it's presented as a farce, that's one thing. If it's actual cross-dressing, like trying to diminish the distinction, that seems to be another thing. Now, good people may disagree with me about that. If your farce is uh, crude or rude, I mean, I, would not, I wouldn't want that. But um, So it, I, I guess it just sort of, for me, that's kind of where I am on that. I have one more written one. We haven't banned Looney Tunes in our, <laughs> our house yet. 
do, it's kind of a two-part question, two, uh, do transgenders end up attracted to persons of the opposite sex? Is this gender dysphoria a new phenomenon or just now in the spotlight? Uh, transgenderism is not the same thing as um, homosexuality. So um, just because Bruce Jenner becomes Caitlyn Jenner doesn't mean that he automatically is attracted to men now. That's not what it means. In fact, a lot of these, um, there is a lot of evidence that some of the men who dress up like women are doing this particularly because they like to be admired. It's stimulating to them sexually to be admired as a woman. It's a weird perversion. And uh, <coughs> so, but it doesn't necessarily make them become same-sex attracted. Uh, not at all. In fact, I've seen story after story of wives who've stayed with their husbands after they transition, which is strange, but it happens. So uh, don't you want to confuse those two? So some people who have this gender-conflicted feelings don't necessarily have same-sex attractions. What was the second part? Is, the, is this gender dysphoria a new phenomenon or just now in the spotlight? That gender dysphoria is a new term for something that's been around for a while. Um, it's a fact that some people feel alienated from their own bodies. Okay, And dysphoria is just saying, it's just the, a word to describe the distress that they feel because of that. It's just a label for a human anomaly. But the anomaly's been there for a long time. But it's a very rare one. Until now, it's been very rare. Are there any uh, further questions? Yeah, guys. I know we uh, we talked about this yesterday, just briefly, but I, I know there are possibly people even in this auditorium who are in situations where this would come up. Now, could you talk to the uh, the idea of uh, deacon as an ordained office, and as such, uh, would it fall under that uh, authority that would be laid out for the roles of men and women in the church and, yeah. and all of that? So that question depends on your ecclesiology, okay? So I'm a Baptist. I'm in a Reformed Baptist church. We don't ordain deacons in, in my church. And our, we also have elders in our church. So a lot of Baptist churches, the deacons are in charge of the church. Okay? That would, be, that would present a complementarian problem for a woman to be a deacon if they're exercising authority like that. I think that's an unbiblical role for a deacon, though. Uh, I think the, the deacons in the church are called to be the servants of the church so the elders can lead and teach the word. I understand we've got some Presbyterians here, but you've got a further distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Um, so that's another difference that, that's important. But um, so if deacons are functioning as deacons, as servants of the church, and they're not ordained, like in my church, there wouldn't be a complementarian violation of headship in a woman serving as a deacon. Now, that's not going to be the same thing though for people who are say you're in the PCA they're having a big dispute about this right now uh, because the deacon the diaconate's an ordained office so ordination is associated with it just like it is with eldership 
and there's a long tradition there, it would become a complementarian problem in that, that particular ecclesiology. I might have differences with them about whether or not they should be ordaining deacons. That's another discussion, though. The question is, as it is, would it present a complementarian problem? Well, pro it probably would, depending on your views of, of, of ordination. So, you know, I, I totally understand what they're, I, I totally am sympathetic with the, the issues that they're dealing with there. Now, having told you that, that I don't have a complementarian problem with deacons functioning as deacons if they were women, I personally don't think the Bible teaches or has any examples of female deacons. I don't think uh, Romans 1 with Phoebe, I don't think that that's what that text means. And I don't think that's what's going on in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's a longer discussion, I suppose, but... That's me, but I happen to be the only person on my elder board that thinks that. <laughs> um, so, so that's where I am on that. But yes, it could be, depending on your ecclesiology, it could, it could present a problem for headship if the deacons are ordained or functioning in uh, patterns of leadership. Um, the question I have, uh, I was trying to formulate while I was uh, listening, but um, the, what goes on, uh, I mean, th these things arise out of a person from a very complex, it seems like to me, a very complex uh, internal thing that's going on. Uh, we, we have different explanations for it. Perhaps original sin might be one. James is, uh, you know, speaking to, you know, we're tempted by things perhaps out of our own past sin life, things like that. Yeah. Um, where, where does temptation arise from? What, how, what's the relationship between temptation and sin? Yeah. Um, that's basically my yeah. question. So um, you want to be careful here because the Bible says that Jesus is tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin, okay? So um, there it has to be a way to be tempted without sinning, right? So you don't want to say that all temptation equals sin, right? There's a way to be tempted and not sin or else Jesus would be a sinner because he was tempted as we are, right? So we affirm that it's possible to be tempted and not sin, okay? So even though we would say all temptation does not equal sin, that does not mean that, you, you, we would not say that um, all temptation is not sin. <laughs> In other words, some temptation can be sinful to us. So when Jesus was tempted, he was tempted externally from the devil, who put a trial before him, lack of food, which produces hunger. That's the trial. And then the devil enticing him to relieve that trial through the devil's prescribed means, turns these stones into bread. Do what I say. And Jesus says no. He endures the trial, and he says no to the enticement. The enticement is coming from the devil who is outside of him. There's nothing sinful within Jesus. So that kind of a temptation would be innocent on Jesus's part and if you and I experience a temptation where somebody outside of us is 
presenting a trial to us or enticing us to do something that's sinful. Just the experience of that is not necessarily a sin, okay? What, what I was discussing yesterday is what about those situations like James 1 where there's not something outside of you that's the enticement. What if you're being enticed to do evil and it's emerging from within? And that's what I think James 1 is describing. James 1 is saying each of us, when he's carried away by his own desire, is, um, is carried away by his own desire, um, and then he ends up sinning, right? That's where he says sin comes from. But the desire is welling up from within the sinner, and the desire is for something wrong. Jesus never experienced that. Now, that desire itself is a temptation to do the wrong thing. The, tem- the desire to do the wrong thing is also a sin itself. It's a sin and a temptation all at once. You see what I'm saying there? So um, that happens to us in so much of our experience. Jesus never had that. He just never had those desires for evil. So that, that's what I was trying to say yesterday. Sometimes our temptations are sinful, sometimes they're not. If they're emerging from within us as a desire for evil, that would be a sin for us. But if, it, if something outside of us is enticing us to do evil, that, w- that wouldn't be all by itself. Well, he asked, what does the doctrine of original sin have to do with some of the things that I just said? Well, original sin teaches, at least in the Reformed understanding of Scripture, that we're sinners by nature and by choice, which means we inherit um, Adam's guilt, right? And we also inherit an inclination towards sin from Adam, right? So you're, you're not born with the settings at zero, Okay, you're already plus 10 on the sin meter in terms of what you want. You don't have to teach kids to sin. They just know, already know how to do it. They're already inclined toward that. So we, in, we inherit Adam's guilt. We also inherit an inclination to sin from him. So that's what it means to be sinners by nature and by choice, which that means that not only are we sinners because of what we inherited from Adam, but also we choose to do sin. Okay? So we are sinners by choice because we've already inherited original sin from Adam. But original sin is real sin. Um, Augustine called it concupiscence. And then in the Christian tradition, especially the Roman Catholic tradition, they call it concupiscence, which is this desiring for evil that seems to reside in our hearts. Concupiscence is just the Latin word for, for desire but in particular the desire for evil. And the Roman Catholic tradition differs with us on original sin because they think baptism washes away original sin. So they don't think concupiscence is sinful. That desiring that we feel for sin is sinful if you've been baptized. We would disagree with that. That's where the reformers majorly departed from the Roman Catholics on, on these things. We would argue that no, when we start to feel a desire for sin, even as believers, that's something we ought to to repent of and name as sin. It's coming up from our sinful nature. Let's take time for just one last question, if there is one.
maybe this is kind of tech too technical, but this morning when you were going through 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verse 3, I just noticed um, that when you were reading out of the NASB, it re- reversed the word order um, than the yeah. NIV and the Holman and the Christian, I mean, those other versions, the ESV, and it put Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. And in all the other versions, it says the head of is, the head of is. is does that make a difference in your argument or the, the principle? It, no, it's two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to open up the text here. If I were to read it very literally, it would go like this. Um, I wish for you to know that of every man, the head, Christ is. <laughs> that's bad English. You know, we don't talk like that. And so that, that's how it would be originally. It, that's the Greek, okay? So, uh, and then text messages popping up as I'm doing this. Um, my wife just hit text message me to ask for the pass the Wi-Fi password. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as I'm looking at this, um, so uh, the word order is not that that significant. What's important is what's the subject and what's the predicate, right? What comes first in, in the original is of every man, and then the head, and then Christ is. And then in the next phrase, what comes next is head, and then it's the head of the woman is the man, and then the head of Christ is God. So it does kind of front head in each one of those. And sometimes when they, the Greek writers put things at the beginning, they do mean to emphasize it, so that could be the, the case. But it does... What that would be emphasizing is that headship is the point of the passage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would. Yeah. But you're right, and it, they're not all it's not uniform in the English translations. They kind of switch up the order. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank all of you for coming out this weekend. Uh, it's a wonderful conference. We're very excited to have Denny Burke with us uh, to, to teach us on these things because we are encountering uh, these issues in our culture today and, and even in the church. And so we have to know how to respond. And I want to, to tell you that uh, these conferences, conferences like these, are, are put on because of you, because uh, of your gracious giving and your donations. And so if you would like to see further conferences put on, we would ask that you prayerfully consider to give to this, uh, give to Amarillo Reform Fellowship. I think it's already been mentioned that there are locations at each of the doors where you're able to do that. So just prayerfully consider that. And let me close our conference by, by praying and praying for 
Dr. Burke and uh, the CBMW and uh, just, just for us. So let us go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious God, we know that your glory is high above the heavens, yet you have come down, you have condescended and revealed yourself to us in nature, in all of creation, but even more so in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the redemption that we have in him. We thank you, Lord, for your servant, uh, Denny Burke, for his time and effort uh, to uh, be diligent in your word and to teach your people. Lord, we pray that uh, we will begin to apply these things, that we might know how to respond to our culture uh, in truth and also in love as we share the gospel with them. Lord, as we uh, have heard over the weekend, we need to understand that uh, it's not that homosexuals and transgenders and and so on and so forth, are sinners and we are not, uh, but that each of us has a sin that arises out of us from our own sin nature. And so uh, we can very much relate in that sense to them, but praise you, O God, for your grace through Christ Jesus and through the good news of the gospel. May we go forth uh, with that gospel. Lord, care for us uh, in our daily routines and as we close out the weekend, and we pray for a wonderful opportunity to gather before you as the gathered church to worship you uh, this Lord's Day. And we lift these things up to you in the most holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of Christ alone. 